This podcast is for information only and should not be considered legal advice. There is no representation that the legal services to be performed by LATEC are better than the services of other attorneys. There is no guarantee of the outcome. Success is rendered on a case-by-case basis. Welcome back, everybody. This is Tim Markley from K. Altman Law. You're listening to the Legally Blind Justice Podcast. Schools are back in session, and students, unfortunately, continue to get in trouble. You may have gotten into a bit of trouble yourself, and that's why you're listening to us. You can think you can handle it by yourself, but you may be surprised to know that you need a lawyer. At K. Altman Law, we talked to hundreds of people who discovered that what they thought was no big deal is a life-altering event. Students who thought they could work it out with the school are being expelled, suspended, or placed on probation. This podcast will discuss those issues, tell you where to find help, and explain how the system works. Now, this is our third episode, so as we've said before, forgive us as we make mistakes and figure this out. And as always, you can email comments and suggestions to timothymarkley at kaltmanlaw.com. Today's topic is Title IX. Now, the first thought that usually comes to mind regarding Title IX is its role in gender equity in sports. But in recent years, sex-based harassment, which includes sexual assault and other forms of sexual-related violence, have been at the forefront of Title IX. The main purpose of Title IX is to abolish sexual harassment of any type from federally funded institutions and programs. Title IX encompasses a plethora of issues that most people may not realize may be violations. This can lead to much confusion on the part of the respondent on what they did and how to rectify that situation. Joining me today to help sort this out is Amy Brown, an attorney at K. Altman Law. Amy has extensive experience in the Title IX realm and has also served as a Title IX director at the college level. She has helped numerous students deal with and overcome their their disputes related to Title IX. So Amy, welcome to the podcast. Now, before we jump into questions, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in student discipline. So I've been an attorney since 1990, and I, back in 2018, I went from being an attorney to being a professor at um, a university in the Northeast Georgia area. And one of the administrators asked me to be part of the um, Title IX office as a deputy Title IX coordinator, and I didn't know it existed until then. And so I said, oh, yes, please, and absolutely fell in love with that area of the law. And I think it's because it merges all my interests of education and students of that age group and um, the law. Everything's all combined, and I just thoroughly enjoy it. All right. So let's start with a few questions, and we'll see where we go from there. So what qualifies as a Title IX violation? There's three types that um, we're going to be focusing on. One is quid pro quo, and that's where somebody in authority over you wants to trade something for a sexual favor. So if you're failing a class and the professor says, I'll give you a B, if you show me what you got, that's a Title IX violation, or potentially. Stalking is also a potential Title IX violation. 
And sexual assault, whether it's dating or not dating violence, is also a Title IX violation. But all of those have to be to the level where it interferes with the complainants, the person who's filing the complaint. Education is um, affected in, in a manner that's severe, offensive, and pervasive. And if it's not all three of those things at the same time, then it doesn't rise to the level of a Title IX violation. So can you give me an example? So not severe, offensive, and pervasive is uh, your ex-boyfriend is following you and he's just a creep and it doesn't really bother you and you still make good grades, you still participate in the drama club. It just doesn't bother you. So if you file a complaint, just to get him in trouble, that's not going to work. It's not a Title IX violation. It might be another type of violation, but it doesn't rise to level of Title IX. If a professor says, you know, um, let's go on a date and won't stop, and he or she keeps emailing you and texting you and sending you uh, messages through um some social media platform and won't take no for an answer, then you become afraid to go to school and it's interfering with your education, then that's t that could be a Title IX violation. All right. So who can file a Title IX complaint? Um, the person who considers themselves to be wronged or the victim or the Title IX office. If they the Title IX office could proceed without the this alleged victim if it so chooses. So if it receives information from a source on campus that something's happened, then it can proceed without the um, complaint. It makes it more difficult, but it can be done. So what's the university's obligation? So I have filed a Title IX complaint. Does it get stuck in a drawer somewhere? Are there things they have to do? If it gets stuck in a drawer somewhere, the university could get in so much trouble and lose federal funding. So it, it, the Title IX office should immediately spring into action to interview the you and not put your complaint in a drawer and then file a notice that a complaint has been filed against whoever you're complaining about. That person is the respondent. So this respondent is going to get notice that the complaint has been filed. Interviews will start. Um, and then once the investigator feels as though he or she has enough information, then a report is written. That preliminary report, all it does is list the facts one by one by one. It's The facts are synthesized from the... Um, interviews. It doesn't say it looks like you did it. It doesn't look like you did it. It just synthesized the facts. The parties have 10 days to respond to that preliminary report and add any additional information. And then a final report is drafted and sent to the parties. And depending on the allegations, it, it may go to a hearing. It may be informally resolved without a hearing. All right, so let's, let's stop there for a second. So the college gets a complaint. Can they decide, I don't know, this doesn't make any sense, I'm not going to investigate, or do they have to investigate everything? 
the university can look at it and say, this doesn't rise to the level of Title IX. This might be something else and shepherd it into the right direction. But the university has to take a deep look at it. It has to talk to the complainant. So um, if the complainant says, I don't want to file a complaint, but I want somebody to walk me to class, from class to my car every day, the university could do that. But the university has to take copious notes on it. So it's taken very, very, very seriously, or should be, by the university. So at K-Amin Law, we deal with a lot of students in Title IX, and there's often what's called a, a no-contact order. What, why do we have those, and what are they? So a no-contact order means that the complainant, the person who filed the complaint or has the problem, and the respondent, the person who the allegations are made against, cannot have any direct or indirect communication with each other. So if they're in the dining hall at the same time, that's probably okay. But don't sit at the table. Don't send text messages. Don't ask your boyfriend to send a text message to the other party. You just need to stay away from each other and not have any communication with each other. So sometimes the allegation is so severe. Is there another step beyond a no-contact order that a university can take as they're investigating? If it is severe enough and the university feels as though the respondent is a danger, he or she will be immediately removed from campus. If it feels like it's, it rises to the level of an emergency and the complainant just can't function with that person on campus, they will be immediately removed from campus. Now, that has its own little appeals process, correct? Because not every respondent is guilty. Yes. So there's always an appeals process. Always. You always are entitled to due process. And swiftly, because we don't want your education to be um, interfered with wrongly. So the university also has obligations to the students to help them continue the education. What does that look like at most colleges? So... For the complainant, the person who filed the complaint, the supportive measures could be anything from counseling, an escort to and from campus, going to remote classes, um, what, maybe parking in a different area, whatever the complainant feels like would make that person feel more comfortable and safer on campus to engage in classes. For the respondent, supportive measures might be the same thing. Counseling, parking in a different area, taking classes remotely, whatever we could, the university could do to assist the respondent in, in continuing his or her education. But everything is stacked against the respondent. Everything. The hearings, the supportive measures, everything. So let's, we'll talk more about that in, in a moment. So we've done our investigation. We uh, have looked at all the facts, and we're going to go to a hearing, which is a formal process. But not every Title IX ends up in a formal process. There's also an informal resolution process. Can you tell us a little bit about that? An informal resolution is when the uh, parties agree to agree. So it's a mediated agreement. Uh, we did one recently 
where the parties agree to stay away from each other, not sit at the same dining table, not change close to each other in the locker room, and um, not sit each near each other on the bus. And that was basically it. And the Title IX case was dismissed. So it went from this huge, nasty, you did something wrong to just stay away from me. So that was a great resolution for this particular client. So it's just stay away, and the case is dismissed. Do informal resolutions show up anywhere in the student's discipline history? No, so that's a double bonus. All right, we're going to move to the hearing part now, which is a much more formal process and, um, as you said, is often stacked against the respondent. So a lot of what happens in these cases comes down to the definition of consent. And on the college level, consent is often very different than what it is in the, in the real world. So talk a little bit about what consent is, and even though schools have a slightly different definitions, what's that typically look like? Schools are usually looking for verbal consent, that everybody agrees to do whatever it is. And without that verbal consent, the respondent could be in trouble. So if you get, uh, if you, well, she didn't say no, that's not going to work. Well, he said yes in the past, that's not going to work. It has to be consent at that time, given overtly, and it can be withdrawn at any time. So things within five, ten minutes can go very, very wrong and impact truly the rest of your life, especially your young life. So what you're saying is, I give you permission to kiss me, but I don't give you permission to go beyond that. And that has to be expressed in a verbal manner. You should probably stop and ask, is this okay? May I do the next thing on my list? It, it, which, it, dating, in the, dating in the 21st century. It, on campus, it's, it's very clumsy and cumbersome. But if you don't want a Title IX violation, you've got to do it. And it still gets down to a credibility issue. All right, so we've decided that an informal resolution isn't what isn't going to work. There, the hearing, the investigative report outlines the evidence, and kind of like a grand jury says that this needs to go to a hearing to be determined. So, who are the players in the hearing? Who are who's involved in this hearing? So you may have a hearing panel consisting of three members who are faculty or staff administrators they're going to be on the hearing panel. And you may have a fourth person who is the hearing panel chair and may or may not vote, depending on the school's regulations. That person may be an outside attorney or it may be a um, person from campus, another administrator, faculty member, or staff member who has allegedly gone through training. Okay, speak to me. You say they've allegedly gone through training. So I've got three college professors, one from the art department, one from the English department, and one from the science department. What's training look like? Who provides that training? Nobody knows. There's no minimum requirement for training. 
So your professors could jump on a YouTube video and watch a, a one-hour, two-hour YouTube video about Title IX training, or they could attend a two- or three-day class and be issued certification through different organizations. So the quality of the training is hard to measure, and it's all over the place. The training should be posted on the school's website so that that training might later be attacked in the appeals process and to give you an idea of what the people should, at a minimum, know about the Title IX process. All right, so we've got a, hear we've got a hearing panel or a jury that could, could be the judge as well made up of school folks. So then you've got the complainant, the person who made the complaint, and the respondent, the person who's been accused. Do, do those folks get any help in this process? Each party, the complainant and the respondent, are entitled to an advisor. The school should provide an advisor. The advisor also goes through training, which can range from YouTube to a three or two or three day seminar. So the advisor is allowed to ask cross-examination type questions of the other party. That's all. They can advise you. So you could go into a breakout room and say, you know, you need to come back and clean up your answer to that question. Or don't be looking on your cell phone while you're um, answering questions. It makes you look like you don't care. Or um, you need to go back and explain this. Or you're not coming across clearly. So the advisor has a streamly important role because if they understand the art of cross-examination, they can really attack the credibility of the other party and really get down to the nuts and bolts of what happened and whether or not it's severe, offensive, and pervasive and try to win on some of those uh, issues. And there's also witnesses, and the same thing applies to them too. Okay, so the university gives me an advisor who's could be well-trained, could be poorly trained, but they work for the university. Okay, am I allowed then to say, thank you for the offer, but can I get my own guy or gal? Yes, and I would highly recommend that you do it because you don't want somebody who works for the university to be at the university hearing dealing with a university issue you don't want that. It looks like a conflict of interest, and sometimes it probably is. Although, if it's done well, then maybe it's not. But why take that chance? And do you really want an art professor cross-examining the person who assaulted you or who is accusing you of assault? You want an attorney who loves this type of work, is happy to help you, knows the case, has talked to you numerous times, knows your school schedule and knows when you're available, knows, has spoken to you, and is your weapon and your shield in this type of environment. It, it's critical because the, if you're found responsible, you might be suspended from school, you might be expelled, you might have to write a paper, but you could lose your way in school. And if you have a job interview, they may say, they may ask, have you been ever, have you been found responsible for sexual misconduct? 
you've got to answer yes. And there are some positions where that's just going to kick you right out of consideration. So a lot depends on this. So like you, you're an attorney. And you have to do, a, before you become a lawyer, you have to go through a, a, a bar review, which includes a, um, an extensive background check. So this, something like this would definitely show up on that background check. Yes, and I would think that if you wanted to get into the teaching profession or anything that deals with children or the public, it, it's going to come up. It's going to be an issue, especially probably throughout your 20s, if not longer. So if, if there's something like this that has such an impact on your, on your potential life after college, what's the standard for evaluation? Like in a criminal case, it's clear and convincing. Is that the same standard for Title IX? No. Um, it's preponderance of the evidence. So more likely than not that it happened. And the rules of evidence don't apply. So everything's out the window with these kind of hearings and you need somebody who is familiar with them and comfortable with them to protect you and guide you through this process. So we go to the hearing and we lose. Is there an appeal, potential to appeal? Yes, but only on certain issues. Uh, for example, bias of one of the hearing panel members, uh, a procedural error, or maybe the sanction is excessive. You don't get a second bite at the apple, which again is another reason to do it right the first time around. And I'm not saying that because, you know, I work for one of these firms. I'm saying that because I believe it. And that's why I work for one of these firms that protects students and specializes in this type of work. Because if it goes wrong, it goes horribly, horribly wrong. Um, so who does the appeal? The appeal is heard by a different person, usually one person. Again, the faculty finds this person, but they look at the basis for the appeal. They look at the record and determine whether or not the appeal is valid. And we've had cases where the appeal person sent it back down to be tried again or uh, said the sanction was too excessive. So the same firm that uh, your advisor does your appeal or your attorney helps you with your appeal. So it's the same person who helped you through this process that can help you with the appeal. All right, so let's go back to this earlier piece of, this is stacked against the, the respondent. So the respondent is, is accused. The respondent could potentially be put off of campus while this is being investigated. He is assigned an advisor who works for the university. He's basically, but may not have extensive training. He's being investigated by a Title IX department that's typically well-staffed and well-trained. Um, and he's being adjudicated by professors who don't really have legal training. And the appeals being heard by somebody at the college. There seems to be a lot of places in there where, where, where that could go wrong. So am I, am I missing anything there? It's This process is fraught with pitfalls for the respondent. It's stacked against the respondent. It's the respondent who pays with through sanctions or through money or through being expelled or through something on his or her permanent record. The complainant can make the complaint and just 
go merrily on their way. If to find that it was a student conduct violation for what the respondent, what the complainant said, you still have to go through the hearing and find the respondent not responsible. Then you could go back and make a complaint about the complainant. So it's a long drawn out process to even say that this, the accuser made a false allegation. So they can make an allegation and just go merrily on their way, show up for the hearing or not. And that's it for them. They, they're entitled to an advisor. They're entitled to supportive measures. It's designed to protect the complainant and basically shun the respondent almost immediately. Now, these rules are up for revision. Uh, they get revised every time there's a, a new president. They'll typically come in and look at the rules. And we're going to dig deeper into those potential rule revisions uh, a little bit later down the road. Amy, I want to thank you for taking a few minutes and being with us today. Um, finally, I would say if you get in trouble, you should seek professional advice. The school or the university has complex rules, policies, and procedures to govern this process. They've got a legal staff to advise them, and you should as well. So thank you for listening to the Legally Blind Justice podcast. If you have a legal question, give us a call at 1-888-984-1341 or check us out on the web at kaltmanlaw.com.